Welcome to Discover Library and Archives Canada, your history, your documentary heritage. I'm your host, Angèle Alain. Join us as we showcase treasures from our vaults, guide you through our many services, and introduce you to the people who acquire, safeguard, and make known Canada's documentary heritage. The invention of photography in the early 1800s revolutionized the way humans communicate and share information. And while it's hard for us to imagine not having a device with a camera at our side at all times, photography has only recently become available to the masses. In this episode, we explore the evolution of photography using Library and Archives Canada's extensive photographic collection as our guide. Archivist Jill Delaney takes us through the collection and brings to light some of the incredible stories surrounding these iconic images. Hi, Jill. Hi, Angel. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Can you give us an idea of the scope of Library and Archives Canada's photographic collection? Well, we have a huge collection, yeah. as you know. Uh, we have probably an estimated 30 million photographic items in the collection. So okay. that includes photographic prints, photographic negatives, but also more historic processes like daguerreotypes, ambrotypes, um, autochromes, color transparencies, sl slides, and then some digital photography as well. Um, can you tell us a bit about the difference between a daguerreotype and the other ones you mentioned, because I don't know all of them. Well, <laughs> well, I could spend all day talking about course, the different processes. Course, but, but in like a two sentence. But I mean, the main difference really between a daguerreotype and more modern processes right. is that a daguerreotype was a single unique image. So it wasn't like a negative where you could make more, make more from okay. it. Once it was made, that was it. It was unique object. It went into a special case. It became a sort of... Artwork. memory yeah almost almost a bit like a, a piece of art and then if you wanted a copy you made a copy of it as another daguerreotype I so see. that would sometimes happen or or sometimes you would just have to sit there while the daguerreotypist made several which would be a very lengthy process so, so if we have a daguerreotype in our collection we might have the only well we have the only one of that one unless that's right the person yep, did that's more. right exactly so if we have and and for the most part it would just be a single daguerreotype that would have been taken so if we have it in our collection mm -hmm. chances are it doesn't exist anywhere else so for example we have um, daguerreotypes of Lord Elgin and yeah. his family right and um, that were taken in Canada and then when he came to visit in the 1850s 1857 or 58 he had a daguerreotype taken here and he took it back to England with him okay and then we purchased it again in the 1990s, I think. It came back to Canada. So it's a traveling so daguerreotype. It's a traveling <laughs> daguerreotype. And a lot of daguerreotypes were traveling like right. that. And in fact, um, at the very beginning, it wasn't the daguerreotypes that were, were traveling. It was the daguerreotypists who were traveling. Right. Right? Because the process was invented in 1839 by Daguerre in France, and it spread like wildfire. The news of this amazing thing you could take a photograph of somebody was really really popular and so um, daguerreotypists set up very quickly so there were probably daguerreotypes done in Canada 
in the early 1840s, but we think they were done by Americans who traveled up from, say, New York City or Boston or somewhere, and they would come and they would camp out in, say, Montreal for a week or so. They'd put ads in the newspapers, come and have your likeness taken, and then... It's like caricatures now at the fair. Exactly. It is kind of like that. It is kind of like that, yeah. yeah. So but it was expensive, too, so... I can imagine. Yeah. And I read recently that some of those daguerreotypes didn't work too well because these early daguerreotypists didn't necessarily know what they were doing. Right. So people would pay a lot of money to have their portrait taken. And then, you know, six months later, it would be gone from the, the image would have faded away. So do we, do we know which is the oldest daguerreotype we have in our collection? We don't. They're very difficult to actually uh, date because because you, it's not like you can write on the back of a daguerreotype like you would today with a with a modern print or with a digital photograph that, that you know it doesn't get imprinted like it would. So you kind of have to put it in context and try and date it that way. Sometimes you can date it by looking at the person and guessing what their age right. might have been, or you can look at the case that the daguerreotypes would would always daguerreotypes were always kept in a case because they were very fragile. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you can date something by the case because they changed over the years. And sometimes you can date it according to what else is around it. Or maybe it was taken for a particular event. You know, we have... Right. And you know so, when the event and, and was. And you know when the event was. A so, lot of investigation work involved. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We have a daguerreotype, for example, of um, the site of the old Molson Brewery in mm -hmm. Montreal just after it burnt down. It's a very rare daguerreotype because most daguerreotypes are, are portraits and this was taken outside. So it's a very complicated process. So this is something that's fairly rare and we can date, date that one because, because yeah. we know from newspaper accounts and from the Molson history, Molson family phone that we have, we can date when the fire happened. Right. So we know more or less, we know the year that it was taken in at least. But most of the earliest photographs in our collections would date from the late, mid to late 1840s. Okay. Those would be daguerreotypes. And then we also have salted paper prints, which are the other really early process. What does so that look like? It looks like a very grainy print. Okay. So it, because it was, it was a process, the advantage of a salted paper print was that you could reproduce it because in fact you would make, the photographer would make a paper negative first and then you could make a paper print from that. And that process was invented by a, a Brit, Talbot, who was in, sort of in competition with Daguerre. Oh, I see. So, um, so that, but that process in Canada, we don't really have anything probably before the early to mid 1850s, but okay. those are still pretty amazing You're images, right. but they, they look the, they look very grainy. So I imagine that Lack's photo collection tells the, pretty much the history of Canada. Uh, what can we learn about early Canada from looking at these photos in our collection? Well, we can learn a lot from looking at them. And I think um, one of the aspects of photographic history that I like to talk about is that photographs are not just illustrations that go along with text. Right. Photographs, you can read a photograph 
and you can learn a lot about the history of Canada in a way by just by having had the photo taken, especially in the early years, in the 1850s up to say the 1880s, it was a difficult process. And so somebody was making a very specific choice right. to take a photograph because of it could, that. of something. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't like today where you just click, pull click, out click, your click. smartphone yeah. and start clicking away and hoping that something will turn out and then you and then you send it to your friend ha look at this that was hilarious and then it dies and mm -hmm. you move on right yeah. this was this was a huge process to take a photograph it could take hours as camera and film technology advanced as we went along and photos could be taken in a split second what sort of opportunities did that open up well it opened up opportunities to kind of capture the moment and uh, it really opened up the field of photojournalism and documentary photography. And that was, that's huge for us at Library and Archives Canada because we collect documentary photography. Mm -hmm. We're not collecting photography as art, we're collecting photography as a document of Canadian right. history and society. So once the cameras became smaller and more portable, once the, the film speed became faster so you could expose something you didn't have to stand there for 30 seconds while somebody took your portrait once you could kind of do a live action shot it really fundamentally changed the way that photography would, was used so and and one really good example of that is it's not really it's sort of pre-photojournalism but it's the photographs that we have from captain james peters from the um, Battle of Batoche and the Battle of Fish Creek from the Riel, Riel Rebellion in 1885-1886. So Peters was uh, an officer in the British military and he was assigned to go out with Middleton to put down the, the rebellion. Mm -hmm. But he was also an amateur photographer. So he took his camera with him and he had this fairly new type of camera that was actually called a detective camera. <laughs> Because it, because it could take photographs fairly quickly and it was considered very small because you didn't need a tripod. Now, how small or big are we talking well, about Well, yeah, exactly. It was, it was a box you camera. With two hands. So, yeah, it, well, he, he slung it over his shoulder, but the camera probably weighed 15 to 20 pounds. So we're not talking about small we're as not in talking, today. No, small. we're not talking about a spy camera. <laughs> so, but... but Compared to the technology before that, it was revolutionary. And it also had a system, it had a shutter on it. So you didn't have to just take the lens cap off and wait and then put the lens cap back on. You just clicked the shutter and it released. And it also had what was called a, a, magaz a negative magazine. So it was still using glass plates, but they were fairly small. And it would automatically change the plates for you. So it would move the next to the film to the next negative, mm -hmm. it, this did the same thing. You could fit about 10 glass plates into, into one of these cameras. But the amazing thing about that camera was that he actually took it into battle with him. And those photographs are considered to be the first battle photographs ever in the world. In the world. In the world. And they are action shots. He was on his horse. Remember, he was an officer, mm -hmm. so he was leading his men into battle, and he was trying to take photographs at the same time. 
And the, he, has, he kept diaries and wrote reports, and he would apologize for the poor quality of these photographs, but he was being shot at by Métis snipers Jeez. while he was taking these photographs. And, in and he's his, apologizing. And he was apologizing and, and saying, well, I was really worried that I was going to ruin all of the plates, because basically because he was worried that a bullet would hit his camera mm-hmm. and then expose all the plates to light. So those are, that's kind of the, the beginning of that sort of photograph that can be instantaneous. And of course, journalism picked up on that. Mm-hmm. And as soon as it got to the point where they could really easily um, publish photographs that we see today, photojournalism in the, ni- especially in the 1930s, photojournalism really opened up. And then all of the sudden, you have all of this documentary photography happening around every possible aspect of life, demonstrations, um, social events, um, inaugurations, uh, anything you can, crime scenes, all of that sort of thing, accidents, all of those sorts of things start to be start to be documented in photojournalism. And war. Do, we, do we have some of these? We do have some of these, uh, absolutely. Uh, I think... Um, we have a little bit from the 1930s, but for me, what, what really comes to mind when I think about the power of that type of photography, where, where you can take a photograph almost instantaneously of something that's happening in the moment, are the photographs that Kryn Taconis took uh, in Holland in the last year of World War II. So Kryn Taconis was um, Dutch. And he was a young man during World War II. And at the end of the war, when the, when the Germans realized they were going to lose, they essentially started starving the Dutch. So mm-hmm. it was called the Hunger Winter. And Taconis pretty much took his life in his hands. He took a hidden camera out on the streets and he photographed people who were suffering, suffering really terribly mm-hmm. at that time. And then after the war, Taconis emigrated to Canada and became a professional photographer, a photojournalist. But he brought those photographs with him, and so we have those in our collection, and they're really moving. And then he became a, a world-renowned documentary photographer, and he photographed for uh, different magazines and newspapers. He, he photographed Hutterite communities. He photographed, he went to a school for the deaf in the 1960s, and, and he really opened up people's eyes to some of these communities that weren't that well known before. He was the first Canadian photographer who was a member of Magnum, which was a photo agency, kind of a photo cooperative that was established by Henri Cartier-Bresson, who was the, the photographer who kind of invented the term, the decisive moment. And mm-hmm. it was a, a, an agency you had to be invited to uh, to belong to, so it was a very, it was a great honor for Taconis to uh, to be a member of that agency. Most people are aware of the amazing feats made possible by digital editing tools nowadays, um, but this kind of trickery isn't as new as we think. Can you tell us about some of the early photo manipulations being done? Well, it's really interesting because. It, I was around when digital photography first came out, so and there was, was yeah, <laughs> and there was a lot of discussion everywhere uh, about well, but people can manipulate right. these images, and then maybe they're they're not the truth, and 
But of course, photographic historians know that photographers and others have been manipulating photos from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So there's a long history there. Uh, and, And the first most basic way that you can manipulate an image with a photograph or with a camera is that you can crop it and you can frame it and and we all do that every day we take our camera and we and we try we're trying to take a beautiful view over the river and there's an ugly building right. on the right hand side so we move we the move camera a, a little bit or or now with digital imaging you you bring up your photograph on your screen and you say oh well i think i want to f- focus in on this one particular aspect Mm -hmm. of it, right? So that's the kind of manipulation that goes on. And that can be used not just to make a photograph more beautiful or attractive, but it can also be used to cut out things that maybe aren't very convenient for the story Mm -hmm. that you're trying to tell. But other ways of uh, doing manipulation also happened in the 19th century. And in fact, um, the Montreal photographer, William Notman, was a master at one of the methods which was called kind of a a composite photograph Mm -hmm. and he often did these for um for fancy dress balls or fancy skating parties or something that would be happening in montreal or ottawa so you would have all of the elite coming to you know a fancy dress ball and um, you couldn't back then, you couldn't just say, okay, everybody pose together over against that wall and we'll take a photograph, right? It was, the exposure was too long and so it would be very difficult to do. So he came up with this very clever way of doing it. He would go and take a photograph of, say, the ballroom separately with nobody in it. Mm. And then he would sometimes do a little bit of drawing enhancement in that. And then he would basically advertise to all of the people who were attending the ball. And he would say, come to my studio and I will photograph you in my studio and then I'll paste you into the photograph of the fancy dress ball. It's like the predecessor of the green screen. It is kind of like the predecessor right? of the green screen. Yes. Yeah. So they, they, would, they would show up in their fancy dress or their costume, because mm-hmm. there, there were costume balls that were very popular in the 1880s amongst the elite. So they would show up for these photographs. They would each be photographed individually or with you know, their husband or their wife or, or whatever. And then he would take that photograph, he would print it, he would essentially cut it out, then he would paste it on to the, the background with all of the other ones. And, and these, we're talking about large photographs here. There would sometimes be 100, 200 people in these photographs. Depending on how much you paid, you would either get closer to the front or further at the back. No. So sometimes, <laughs> or, but also, you know, say if the governor general was attending, right. they would right. get at the front, obviously. Yeah. And then and then other people, you would, you know, it'd be kind of like a Where's Waldo thing, right? <laughs> trying, to, trying to find where your, your head ended up in that image and he would so he would paste them all on and then he would essentially re-photograph that photograph do some touch-up and then sell those to the attendees of the ball so you could buy prints and we do have we've digitized uh some of those fancy dress balls and put them on the website that's right absolutely absolutely and we also were lucky enough to acquire several years ago some of the original paste-ups, as they were called, which is the, the ones where there was the background and then the, the, the individual items were kind of pasted on or the individual portraits were pasted on. And those give us a really good sense of the process and how much touching up was going on with these images, that sort of thing. So, so there's that kind of um, 
manipulation, but th that was also used, say, uh, for propaganda purposes. So we have photographs from World War One, where um, specifically from what I've seen specifically is from the Battle of Passchendaele. The Battle of Passchendaele, thousands of Canadian soldiers were killed at the Battle of Passchendaele. Mm -hmm. It was a real massacre. Mm -hmm. uh, and and thousands more were, were injured. So it's a very important battle for Canadian military history. Uh, and we had photographers there, uh, but somebody back in the Canadian propaganda office or whoever, I'm not sure who made this decision, apparently decided that what I considered really grim battle scenes, because there, there was mud everywhere. Passchendaele right. was famous for mud, because the British and Australians had been fighting there for months, and it was raining, mm -hmm. and it was just horrid before the Canadians even went in, decided that the photographs were maybe not quite grim enough, didn't really show what was just happening to Canadian was. soldiers. Yeah. So you can see in some of the photograph albums that we have from the World War I uh, collection that they've actually cut out bodies of dead Canadian soldiers from one photograph and moved them into the foreground of another photograph to, to make a stronger image. Right. So, so wow. that kind of, and it's, unless you actually compare them side by side, it's mm -hmm. a bit difficult to really see that that was done. It's, it, it can be done very cleverly. Mm -hmm. The other master of manipulation was Joseph Karsh. Mm. And I think a lot of people don't realize this, but he often did sandwich negatives for some of his projects. Those are a little bit different than a composite. Okay. So, so I don't, they're not fake photographs, but Karsh was always trying to bring out the best in his subjects and and lighting was extremely important to the final results that he got for mm -hmm. his photographs so in the 1950s for example he had a, a contract with mclean's magazine where he traveled across the country and he took photographs um, in that that were supposed to typify what happened in that city so for example in regina he visited the um, rcmp training center that was there and this is 1952-53 okay. and um, he attended a, a graduation ceremony there and there was one there's one photograph that looks like it's a, a young officer who's just graduating and he's actually in the chapel at the RCMP training center and he's praying. I mean, this is the 1950s, mm -hmm. right? So, but Karsh wasn't really happy with the lighting in that chapel. So he took us one photograph of the altar mm -hmm. with his lighting and then he took another photograph of the officer, the young graduate with different lighting, specifically on him. And then with the negatives, he, he made copy negatives, and then he cut out physically, you know, mm -hmm. with an X-Acto knife or, or whatever, he cut out the officer, and he cut the space out of the backdrop, and he put them together in, in what's called a sandwich negative, and then yeah, re-photographed it, right. made a new negative, and then made prints from that. And you can see in, if you look carefully at those kinds of photographs that Karsh did, those kinds of um, photographs depicting auto workers, for example, or steel workers that he did, or, or this RCMP photograph, if you look carefully, the lighting is not quite 
right in a way because it comes from two different sources. I'm so it have doesn't. To go it, look. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It looks. It's very effective, right? Mm-hmm. It's very dramatic, and you can understand why he did it. Yeah. But if you look carefully, sometimes the person's face will be lit from one direction, and the background will be lit from a different direction. But photography so. is art. Yes, for Karsh, it was definitely, I would say, it was definitely an art. He was doing portraits the same way that Rembrandt would have done a portrait. Karsh was doing a portrait, and he was always trying to make the sitter look the best that they could possibly look or make his photograph look the best that they could possibly look. But everybody makes a choice when they take a photograph, whether they realize it or not. Mm -hmm. As soon as they pull out their camera or their smartphone, they're making a choice. Right. Library and Archives Canada holds a vast collection of uh, photographs from Yusuf Karsh. Uh, What kind of material can we find in that collection? You can find almost everything. Well, I shouldn't say that. You can't find almost everything, but it's a very large collection. So we have almost all of his negatives for his entire career. So he opened his studio in Ottawa in 1932, and we have glass plate negatives, which he would was using then, which would have been common to use back then, uh, starting from 1932 and moving forward until he closed his studio in 1992. Wow. So we have all of his negatives. Now, he did cull some negatives when he moved his studio. He moved his studio from Spark Street to the Chateau Laurier in Ottawa in the in the 1970s and they went through you know as you would during a move you they went up. through and mm-hmm. so for some for some sittings that nobody had ordered reproductions of for years and years and years a decision was made to call those but all of the photographs of that we all know all of the sort of celebrity photographs the um, the photographs of politicians and artists and everything are there and then on top of that we have proofs and we have um, uh, archival prints, some of which he made specifically for the archives when when the when he donated and sold his collection to us. But we also have all of the business records from his studio, and those are really fascinating mm-hmm. because there's all kinds of correspondence in there, and you can really see how he organized his work and how he managed to get some of these incredible portraits mm-hmm. that he got over the years you know he wasn't he didn't just sit back and wait for famous people to come to him famous people did come to him i mean after the churchill portrait was circulated around the world during the second world war after 1942 people wanted to be photographed by karsh but he also went after certain people when he thought that he could sell their portraits to magazines or or make a book mm-hmm. or those sorts of things and so he he would organize these tours that he would do to Europe to London to Washington Cuba all over the place and and you can see in his appointment books or his day books or his correspondence that he would set up very specific appointments rounds of appointments while he was there to to try and 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 capture the portraits of some of the leading people of the day I think that he was quite fascinated by power. And you, in his autobiography, you do get a sense okay. of that, that he was quite interested in, in trying to kind of capture the sense of power that people had. Politicians, musicians, artists, writers, 
dancers. Uh, he he really was interested in in those issues. So he did go after those sorts of people. He was attracted to them, but he it was also a business, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we shouldn't forget that this was a business, right. and and he, yeah, and he knew that if he did manage to convince Pablo Casal to have his portrait taken, that then he could sell that photograph to a lot of magazines uh, around the world and and make an income from that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that so that was a big part of that process. Now, mind you, when he first started out, he was taking passport photographs, he was taking wedding photographs, mm-hmm. he was doing all the ordinary things that, that struggling photographers do in yeah. order to to make money but and then after a while obviously he didn't really need to do that anymore but there's one really kind of interesting story that happened last year a researcher uh, contacted me because he's writing a, a thesis on um, Ray Bradbury and Kurt Vonnegut the Ray Bradbury the science fiction writer and Kurt Vonnegut the modernist let's say. And I said to him, well, that's very strange. Why are you writing about them? And he explained it to me and it was kind of interesting. But what was most interesting, he said, why I'm contacting you is because I've heard there's a photograph taken by Karsh of Ray Bradbury and Kurt Vonnegut together. Together. And I mean, I had no idea, but I went in and I looked and there it was. And then I thought, well, I'm going to try and figure this out. And, (laughs) And it turned out that they were both in town the same time as Karsh was going to be there. I think it was in probably in New York City that he did that portrait. And uh, they actually had appointments back to back. And Ray Bradbury went in for his appointment, found out that Kurt Vonnegut was coming in next, was kind of talking with Karsh and said, well, I'd like my photograph taken with Kurt Vonnegut. And so there's, there's this a whole great set of photographs of the of these two amazing American authors, iconic American authors, mm-hmm. but taken together in in a Karsh right. studio. So it, and it just showed there when you look at some of these these booking lists, these appointments, it's just famous person after famous person after famous person. It's quite astonishing. And we have those. And we have those. Awesome. Absolutely. And we have correspondence. We have his Karsh's correspondence with Marshall McLuhan, which was pretty entertaining. I mean, it's, there's not a lot there. But Karsh kept saying to McLuhan, well, I'm, I'm just an uneducated Armenian immigrant. I wouldn't understand what you're talking about. And McLuhan responded a couple of times very curtly. Of course you would understand. It's it's what you do. The medium is the message. Sort of yeah. that kind of, I mean, I'm just paraphrasing, right. but that kind of correspondence going on between, <laughs> between him and Marshall McLuhan. So it's quite fascinating once you get in there. There must be some very sophisticated systems involved in the preservation of fragile photos and one-offs, for example, we were talking about. What types of facilities does uh, Library and Archives Canada have to safeguard these rare photos? Library and Archives Canada has really has two main facilities for the storage of our photographs. The first one is the Gatineau Preservation Centre, uh, and there's several vaults at GPC, as we call it, mm-hmm. um, that are specifically designated for the storage of photography. I always think of the cold one that and you have to put your winter coat on to get in. That's right. and and 
we're not allowed to go in. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and in fact, yes, the cold vaults, there's two cold vaults, and they hold both color photography and color motion picture film. But the reason is um, some color processes are subject to fade or shift color. People yellow. have seen they go yellow yeah. or they go red over time, and that's mm. because the chemicals are shifting. And it's, it's known that if you, if you lower the temperature enough, you can kind of halt that, that progress. So if we have family photos that are starting to go yellow, for example, if we put them in a cold storage, we might be able to stop it? Uh, you might be able to... Yes, you might be able Stabilize. to slow it down a bit. I, the, the issue is also, there's an issue of humidity. Okay, I right? see. Okay. So it's a little more complicated. Okay. And in fact, the way the cold vaults work at uh, GPC is that um, they're, they're kept at about minus 18 Celsius, Oof. I think. And you can imagine that if you just stuck a color photo in there that had come from 20, you know, plus 20, the humidity might crystallize and then you'd get all these ice crystals all That's over the right, photographs. Yeah. So there's a series of kind of fridges that you put the photographs in and then they, over a period of 24 hours, they reduce the temperature slowly to minus 18 and they take them out of the other side of the fridge and they go into the vault. And then if somebody requests those photographs to see, a researcher wants to see them, then they go through that reverse process. So that's very interesting. Yeah. And the other main facility we have, of course, is the new nitrate storage mm -hmm. preservation facility, which is an amazing facility. And, and the reason we have that is um, nitrate is a short form, but for nitrate cellulose uh, film negatives, it also has a tendency to chemically degrade mm -hmm. over time. And it was a popular film. It was really the only, it was the first film base that there was after glass plate negatives. They moved to a film. So it, it really runs from the early 1880s up into the 1950s. So you can imagine that's a huge part of Canadian history that could be lost. Mm -hmm. And so what happens if it's stored at room temperature is it tends to off gas and then the image degrades. It's actually really kind of disgusting. It sort of buckles up and turns yellow and smells a bit like dirty socks not and good. It, it's not, not you know good. that something bad is happening there. So the nitrate facility specifically stores nitrate at the best temperature to keep it stable. And again, it, there's a process of removing the negatives, warming them up slowly, bringing them to, to the researchers. And, uh, and the, I mean, the other thing about nitrate is that it can, because it's releasing gases, you, you don't want people just breathing that all no. of the time. And it's also combustible. Yeah. So, and once nitrate starts to burn, it actually produces its own oxygen. And so it's almost impossible to put it out. So the nitrate facility has been specifically constructed to reduce the chance of fire and or spontaneous combustion, which has never really happened with photographic nitrate, but has happened with motion mm -hmm. picture. Uh, it's built specifically to control that and to minimize it if something did happen. So it is very sophisticated. It's extremely sophisticated facility. And if, if there are ever tours, I encourage people because it's quite fascinating to, to see how it was constructed with all of, these, all of these things in mind. Well, thank you very much for being here today, Jill. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun.
If you'd like to learn more about Library and Archives Canada's photographic collection, please visit us online at bac-lac.gc.ca. On our homepage, select Discover the Collection and then click on Photography. On this page, you will find links to multiple online resources about photography, including our portrait portal. Be sure to also consult our blog at thediscoverblog.com to find out how to locate photographic material in our collection. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Angèle Alain, and you've been listening to Discover Library and Archives Canada, where Canadian history, literature, and culture await you. A special thanks to our guest today, Jill Delaney. For more information about our podcast, or if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please visit us at bac-lac.gc.ca slash podcasts. <laughs>